So I remember, um, I'm going to be a little transparent with you today, not that I'm not ever transparent with you, uh, but, but I remember uh, vividly, I have this memory in my mind, I'm at church, I'm in middle school, um, it's our middle school Sunday school class, and we have a gal, uh, I think she was a senior in high school, she was teaching our middle school class, and I remember vividly, I don't know why this memory sticks out, but I remember vividly just going, oh, she's different than me. Her, her body is different than mine. And thus began a long journey of dealing with my eyes. And dealing with the fact that God gave us these eyes, and God gave us an attraction for people of the opposite gender, and thus, you know, the evil one distorts that, right? Now, I know all of you are going, yeah, Brad, you're getting a little too personal. I'm not going to go into any more detail than that, but... All of us men, I know you know what I'm talking about. I also have a memory when I was in college and going for my youth ministry degree, and part of our, my, my process was getting some training in psychology, and, and one of those classes dealt with uh, dealing with emotional and spiritual wounds and doing that emotional healing and that kind of stuff. And I grew up in a pretty sheltered life, meaning Christian family, um, parents were far from perfect, but a loving home, all that kind of stuff. And I knew that some homes were uh, out of whack because you, you hear stories. So I, I've heard about verbal abuse, and I, I've heard that sometimes there can be some, you know, some physical abuse in the home, but I Remember when I first realized that there was actually sexual abuse that happened in the home. And I remember a gal in our class telling her story of being abused sexually by her father. A man who was a leader in his community, a leader in his church. And the pain and the trauma that she went through. And the realization that often this kind of abuse, any kind of abuse, it's generational. And so as we talk about human sexuality, and that is a gift from God, uh, there's a realization that there is one, the evil one, who wants to distort whatever God has created. And so as we began this conversation around human sexuality, and just a reminder, our stance as a church regarding human sexuality is this, faithfulness in heterosexual marriage celibacy in singleness, 
These constitute the Christian standard. So for us, if you're going to be a faithful follower of Jesus, that means one man, one woman in marriage. And it means if you're going to be a faithful follower of Jesus and you're not married, you're going to follow Jesus in celibacy. Now, it's hard, I know. I mean, those, those are hard requirements according to our world and our society. But, I mean, if we think about it, there's nothing really in the kingdom of God. I mean, Jesus calls us to a way of life that is not easy. It's not just around human sexuality. It's around many other areas of life. But it's recognizing that this picture of human sexuality is a gift from God. And so as we've talked about and laid the groundwork over the first couple of weeks in this series, we've come to this point where it's really about one man, one woman, one flesh. This is the biblical idea of what marriage is. Now, again, I know in our culture, uh, marriage is different, okay? And the, the world can have its definition of marriage, but biblically, it is one man, one woman, one flesh. And, and again, I know there are some people in some churches who will push against this, but uh, for Crossroads Church, for our denomination, for me, uh, this is our understanding of what a biblical marriage is. One man, one woman. One flesh. And where this comes from, as we looked at <coughs> excuse me, last week, is Genesis 1, where we see uh, the story of creation. And it says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that he, they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image, In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So we're created in the likeness of God, and we are created male and female. And in the end of us, as we talked last week, God said, this is all very good. His creation is very good. Good being the Hebrew word tov, which is more than just good. It means when something is good in God's creation, it has the seeds of life within it to produce future life. And so there is a, 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 a bigger thing to God's creation and what is good for God than just it's good. No, it's good in the fact that it produces life which reproduces life. And if you think about it, that's the picture of the kingdom of God, even for us today. I mean, think about it. What are we called to do? Make disciples who make disciples. So, this this is a side note. If a church is good, a church is making disciples who are making disciples. So in this original design, there are two genders, male and female, and that is good. Uh, And in Genesis 2, as we move along, we see a more uh, detailed description of the creation of the man and the woman. And in this description, the Hebrew word for the man is ha-hadam. And ha-hadam, or the man, is created, then he's placed in the garden, he's given instructions 
um, on what to do there. You can eat from any plant, any tree, but there's one tree, the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil that you're supposed to stay away from. But God also saw that when he put the man, Ahadam, into the garden, it wasn't good because Ahadam, in and of himself, didn't have the seeds of life to reproduce life, and so he made a helpmate, the woman, and he put her in the garden with him, and the two of them now are good because they together have the seeds of life to reproduce life. And so God created the woman out of Hadam, and when Hadam saw the woman, he says this in Genesis 2, he says, um, the man, Hadam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, the Hebrew word is Isha, for she was taken out of man, the Hebrew word here is Ish. That is why Ish leaves his father and mother and is united to his Isha, and they become one flesh. And the reason why I pointed this out last week and put this here again is just a reminder, we see that the writer of this text of the Hebrew here is gone from calling the man Hadam to now he calls him Ish and the woman is Isha. And so you get that picture in the wording of the name that the woman comes from the man. And this is important and this is why we get this bone in my bones and flesh in my flesh and we see from our author here that he wants us to see just by the name that they're one flesh. And this is why a man will leave his father and mother and become one flesh. And so God's original design is one man, one woman, one flesh. Now in the kingdom of God, um, math doesn't always work like it does in the world. And so when it comes to biblical marriage... The arithmetic is this, 1 plus 1 equals 1. But something happened along the way. We all know what happened. We've heard this story many times. It's called the fall. We've heard the story about the serpent, about the woman, about the man, about the apple. It was definitely an apple. I just want you to know that. Even people in, who didn't necessarily grow up in the church have an idea of this story. They have an idea of the fact that there's a man and a woman in some garden somewhere and they weren't supposed to eat something, and they ate it anyways. So I want us to read together the story of the fall, starting in Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to Isha, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Isha said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it. Or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the Isha. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened 
and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When Isha saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to Ish, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. There it is, in the garden, desire. A feeling like something is missing. I'm missing out on something. God is holding back on something. He's holding out for, from me and and. Then the serpent comes along and does what the serpent does. He, he taps into that desire and says, hey, 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 hey. Yes, God is holding out on you. If you remember a year ago, we talked about the great deception. And we talked about the evil one comes to destroy and uh, put to death that which God created. And so... The, the serpent's whole goal here is to take Tov out of the garden. To make Tov, or the garden, no longer good. And God's creation no longer good. So the story continues with verse 8. Then Hahadam and, and Isha heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord called to Hahadam, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I have commanded you not to eat? Hahadam said, Isha... You put here with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to Isha, What is this you have done? Isha said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate it. Something changed in the garden. Something has changed in this story, yes, shame has now entered the garden because they recognize that they were naked, but there's something else. And I wonder if you noticed it. I'm going to go back to verse 8. Did you notice Hahadam and Azisha? heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Notice that the writer proceeds to call the man Hahadam again. No longer is the word ish used. Could it be that the author wants us to see That now there is a division, a separation between the man and the woman. Where before it was Ish and Isha, Ish and Isha, now from the time they both eat, it is Hahadam and Isha. The picture 
of one man and one woman has now been distorted. There are actually four things that are distorted in the garden. Four good things. Four things that are tov that I want to just point out this morning. The first one is obvious. We know this one because we talk about it often. The relationship with God is now distorted. The man and the woman are removed from the garden. The garden represents really the place where mankind communes with God. As we look at the whole story, it's, it's the place where we are at one with our Creator. God walked in the cool of the day of the garden with mankind. And so now there is a distortion, a separation in the relationship between God and mankind. And this is the story, the gospel story. Genesis 1 and 2, God's creation. God's original design, it's good. Genesis 3, the fall, sin has entered the world. The rest of the Old Testament is a story of redemption, of God through the law, through a sacrificial system, providing a temporary way of redemption for mankind. And then the New Testament, Christ comes and provides not only uh, redemption, but restoration and reconciliation. This is the good news, but... It is distorted as a result of the fruit that was eaten by the man and the woman. Second thing that was destroyed is the relationship between man and woman. And we already talked about this. There became a brokenness in this relationship. A brokenness not only in the relationship but in the sexuality and in even physically. The serpent succeeded in destroying God's design of what a relationship between a man and a woman was supposed to be like. There's a couple other things that are destroyed. Abundant life. I mean, I don't know if you've thought about it, but in the garden, Adam and Eve... The man and the woman had no need. Think about that. No need. But as a result, they are taken out of the garden, and now there's toil and pain in meeting the needs. It's interesting that in a Abundance, the man and the woman wanted more. But it's mankind. I mean, think about it. It's not only in the garden, it happens outside of the garden. King David has everything, and even in the midst of his abundance, he wants one more wife. Solomon outdid his father. We know that story. In abundance, he took more. Think about the Israelites. The Israelites, in their abundance, the Israelites would turn their eyes away from God and follow other gods. The early church, same thing. 
The early church suffered persecution. And then about 300 years later, they were elevated to a place of prominence and a place of power. And now all of a sudden, it's all about power and who's in control. And their eyes went off from God. They wanted more. And it's happening here in America. We live in abundance. And we want more. There's one more thing that was distorted because of Adam and Eve eating from the tree, and that is eternal life. Death now entered into our existence because the man and the woman no longer had access to the tree of life. God removed man and woman from the garden. Death entered in, and as a result of sin, Um, when it comes to our sexuality, we live in a world where there is disordered sexuality. The theme, again, behind the Great Deception series last year was this from John Mark Comer's book. He said this, Deceptive ideas from the devil that play to our disordered desires, the flesh, that are normalized in a sinful society, the world. That's what's happened, okay? We all have disordered desires, and the evil one has brought deceptive ideas and to feed into our disordered our des- desires, and now those have become normalized into our culture, and that is our worldview. That is our culture. So as we talk about disordered sexuality... That, that we are experiencing in our world today, and, and just a clarification, um, the world has been experiencing disordered sexuality from the time Adam and Eve left the garden. So what we are experiencing now, yes, we're not used to it, and it may be like, ah, but it's been going on since man and woman left the garden. This is nothing new in the scope of history. Maybe my history it's new, but it's nothing in the scope of history. So, as we talk about disordered sexuality, um, we have to remember it is a result of deceptive ideas from the evil one that are playing into our disordered desires. And just one more note of clarification we all have disordered desires regarding sexuality. All of us. So what do we do? Paul talks about in Colossians 3, he, he begins chapter 3 by talking about, you know, since then you've been raised with Christ, set your mind and your heart on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, not on the stuff below, And then he says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Notice those first three words there. Put to death. That's a hard thing. This is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God 
Okay? So, so our world is, we have the evil one who's got these deceptive ideas, and they feed into our disordered desires. Okay? What, what the kingdom of God says, oh, uh, put to death our disordered desires. Because then, when the deceptive ideas of the evil one come, they don't have anything to feed on. And again, this is a daily thing. It's not a one-time thing. It's not, okay, I'm sacrificing or I'm putting to death my disordered desires, and you walk out of here and it's done. It's a journey. It's a daily process. It goes on and on and on. Now, I have something very important to say right now. There's good news. There is good news. You see, there are four good things that Jesus restores. Now, I bet you can guess what those four things are, right? One, God restores our relationship with God. Jesus came and reconciled us with God. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus made it possible for me and for you to, in essence, walk in the cool of the day again in the presence of God. This is good news. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what we, the church, need to be proclaiming from every possible spot we can. The people out there are looking for good news, and we have it, so let's proclaim it. Second thing that Jesus restored is the relationship between a man and a woman. You see, when we live our life in a way that is honoring and pleasing to God, it allows us to be in one flesh with our spouse on a day-to-day basis. You see, I, I've shared here before how, you know, a bunch of years ago, Terry and I went through a stretch, okay? Um, part of us coming back together was not me telling Terry what she needed to change, It was me recognizing how I was out of line in my relationship with my Savior. It was me taking the time to go, um, search me, oh God. Show me. And as God began to do the transformative work in me, he drew me closer to Terry. And at the same time, Terry is doing that thing too. And thus we are being drawn together. So Jesus restores the one flesh relationship between a man and a woman. The third thing he restores is abundant life. Jesus promised in John 10.10, he says, The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I come to give life and to give it abundantly. Life to the full. Life where, yes, we still live in this world where we have to work hard and there's hard days, but in the midst of it, we can experience fullness and peace. Jesus promised us in in Matthew, he says, seek first the kingdom of God, and then what? 
He'll take care of all these other things. Again, that doesn't mean we sit at home and do nothing. We have to work and, and all that kind of stuff, but we don't have to worry about tomorrow. Remember, we memorized this one passage a couple months ago, Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Uh, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything, but by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, the peace of God, the shalom of God, the abundance of God will keep your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. The last thing he restores Jesus is eternal life. It's a free gift from God through Jesus. We have eternal life. Now, I, I often quote Isaiah 61, and this is the prophetic word from Isaiah speaking about Jesus, and it says, Jesus came to proclaim good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, set the captives free, declaring the year of the Lord's favor, which means in our brokenness, Jesus brings healing. So, this sexuality stuff is a powerful thing. There is something that happens spiritually and emotionally when a man and a woman have sex together. I I can't explain what, but there is a bond that happens. So this one flesh thing is, it's, it's the real deal. It happens. So, If you've had sex before marriage or you've had multiple sexual partners, sometimes there is some residue that stays with that other person or stays with you. You can be set free from that and God brings forgiveness through Jesus for that. Jesus brings healing for that. Jesus isn't up there going, oh, you've been bad, you've been bad, you've been bad. You're going to be... That's going to be with you all your life. No. You can be set free. If adultery was in your life, whether you commit adultery or your spouse committed adultery, Jesus brings healing for that and forgiveness. Remember, Jesus' forgiveness is as far as the east is from the west. Meaning when Jesus forgives, it's gone. You can be set free. If divorce is in your past, Jesus brings healing and forgiveness. He renews and reconciles. He restores anything that you've experienced outside of God's original design regarding human sexuality. Jesus brings forgiveness, He brings healing. He brings reconciliation. So the good news for us is, yes, we're all broken. But yes, Jesus heals. Jesus forgives. Jesus sets free. In Hebrews chapter 4, in closing here today, um, the writer says this. He says, let us then... Approach God's throne of grace with confidence 
so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. God's throne is a throne of grace. And we can go to him with confidence. And we can receive mercy. Again, mercy is is when you don't receive what you deserve. Okay, that's, that's, that's mercy. You deserve this punishment. Mercy says, no, you don't. You're not getting that. You may deserve it, but you're not getting that. We, we can go in, in all of our mess and go to the throne of grace with confidence, and the mercy of God will pour on us and bring forgiveness and healing. Grace is receiving gifts that you don't deserve. And so none of us deserve to be in relationship with God. But we can re- receive from this throne of grace, grace to help us in our time of need. So when we are struggling, when we are going some hard, really difficult, God will give you the grace you need to walk through it. So today... Um, no matter what your history is, I want to invite you to come to the throne of grace and experience his forgiveness, his healing, his reconciliation, so that you can be free to walk with God in the cool of day. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love. Thank you that um, you took what the evil one has distorted and you brought order to it. Take, thank you that you took those areas that have been destroyed and you've brought them back to life. And I pray, Father, uh, that you, your healing balm, would just wash over this sanctuary this morning. That no matter where anybody is on this journey regarding the human sexuality, that they would receive your mercy and your grace this morning. Pour your mercy and grace. Pour it out in Jesus' name. Amen.